Hello everyone, welcome back to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. This is Al, remember me? Uh, yeah, I know it's been a while since I've posted something for Geekery in General. There are a couple of reasons for that. As I'm sure some of you know, this is not a full-time gig for me. It's just something I do in my spare time. And over the last few months, we've been swamped at my day job. So that means lots of overtime and less time to do other things. So, and overtime makes Al lazy. But it helps my bank account. Fair enough. <laughs> but also, a couple other reasons is... As you might remember, I think this was actually the last episode I posted where talked about gaming in the back rooms. And I do have a file up on my drive-thru RPG store, uh, drivethroughrpg.com. The game is called Caught in the Back Rooms. So it has a packet of character generation rules, a character sheet, and then it has a short adventure. Another reason I've been a little busier the last few months is... I am in the process of writing and setting up some music for an audio drama that I hope to be producing either late summer, early fall. So I've got my, I know I've got my fingers in a lot of things right now. So uh, some things to look forward to. And I helped. Yes. So you probably recognize that swinging sexy voice as belonging to the man who puts the old in old school. Wait a second, Al. Aren't you older than me? Technically, yes, I am older than you, and I've also been gaming longer than you. So who puts the old in old school? You do. You just say that because I'm bald, because my hair yeah. fell out. I would have to say I probably look the younger of the two of us, even though I'm a little bit older. You didn't have teenage daughters. That's what did all the white. All the white comes from teenage daughters, and the lack of hair, probably teenage daughters as well. Yeah, sure. Blame it on the kiddos. Well, they're adults now. I'm waiting for my hair to come back in and the color to come back into my beard. Does that happen? And then by the time that happens, they'll have grand, they might have grandkids, and then it'll all kind of fall out again. Yeah, I suppose. But hey, it's me. I'm here. Yes, and today Chad is going to join me for... This is going to be a bit more of a freeform discussion. We're going to be discussing the term old school. It's a term that gets used among gamers, and it gets used in other contexts as well. So, well, we are going to talk a little bit about how old school and how that term is applied in tabletop role-playing games. We're also going to talk a little bit about some of the other context. So let's start with the definition. Old school, as defined by Merriam-Webster, is one, adhering to traditional policies or practices, and two, characteristic or evocative of an earlier or original style, manner, or form. Vocabulary.com defines it as follows. Old school means something close to old-fashioned, but it's a term with more pride behind it. And UrbanDictionary.com defines it as a positive appellation referring to when things aren't flashy, but empty of substance, were done by hard work, didn't pander to the lowest common denominator, and required real skill labor-saving devices, shortcuts that reduce quality, and quitting before the task is done are not characteristics of old school. So usually when most people use the term old school, it's used in a positive manner. It's something they look upon fondly. So what do you think of those definitions, Chad? If someone said, hey, you look old, I bet you're old school. How would you define old school? How would I define old school? Um, just that, you know, um, you know, I'm a music guy. Uh, so, you know, it's before auto-tune. It's before, you know, a lot of things that are relatively new. I mean, and, and, it, and it gets tricky with music as well because is grunge old school, you know? It's relatively new in the, in the idea of music but it's 30 years ago. 
you know. So what defines old school is hard to say, um, depending on the topic. I mean, I have very definite opinions about gaming. I know we're going to get to that later, so I'll leave that out of there right now. Um, but old school, yeah, like you said, it's got nostalgia based around it. Like, have you noticed lately that Domino's is now using the Noid again? Yeah, actually, I noticed that, except now I think they're doing them CGI instead of the they old uh, claymation. claymation. They are, and see, that's where you can, that's a good way to talk about the separation of old school versus new school. Because old school, he was claymation, you know, he he moved poorly, but those of us that grew up in that era absolutely loved the Noid. You know, and now this new Noid is CGI. He's he flows much better. He's all this stuff, and it's cool to see the Noid again. But I would prefer the old claymation. But it's probably at this point in the way things are done, it's probably cheaper to do it as a CGI character versus claymation. Yeah, and and you make a good point when you mention music because. I have occasionally heard old school used in different genres of music. Probably the ones that I hear using most is hip hop and rap. They often refer to old school as a type of hip hop that was common in the late seventies to early eighties. Generally this type of rap featured more fun and playful lyrics as opposed to the socially conscious rap we would start to see develop in the mid to late 80s and beyond. Uh, so this old school rap, generally characterized by moderate tempos, simple beats, very easy to get into, uh, you know, in, easy to enjoy. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's how I hear a lot of times in rap, how they refer to old school. I'm not sure if country and music usually uh, uses old school, uh, since I'm not really a country fan. I mean, if they do, I would probably see old school as the stuff like Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, maybe even Kenny Rogers, where it Hank was... Williams, Patsy Cline. See, to me, when I talk, if you're talking country music, to me, old school would be, you know, that, that 40s and 50s type of stuff. Hank Williams Sr., not Jr., you know, Patsy Cline, uh, Roy Rogers, guys like that. Now, when you start talking about modern day music, to me, anything past like 1980, let's say, just for a, an easy cutoff, would be considered modern country. But now there's new country, which is basically 80s rock and roll with twang. So, you know, to me, there's three very definitive sections of country music probably more if i really sat down and thought thought about it but we're just kind of shooting off the top of our head here today yeah because i know for a while there was this distinction between the nashville sound and the bakersfield sound i i get the two mixed up but like one i think the nashville sound was more like the overproduced you know really polished stuff like uh, Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, and again, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And the Bakersfield sound was more stuff that was meant to have a bit more rough, uh, unpolished feel to it, and it uh -huh. was designed to be an, um, this reaction to this overproduced, um, very pop culture country that you saw being produced. And I, I know I've I have had people i've known over the years who said that the thing they hate about modern country is it doesn't sound like country it as you put it it sounds like rock or pop with a little bit of a twang and you know generally they're still talking about a lot of the same things that older country would sing about it's just now it's it, it they're doing it with a different sound Right. I think thematically country music hasn't changed that much. It's about it's about beer and women having fun. Your truck broke down, your dog ran away, <laughs> your girlfriend left you with your for your buddy. 
Yeah, well, you know, you know how that that old joke goes. What do you get if you play country music backwards? Get, get your, your wife back, back. Get your wife back. Get your back, money you back. Get your dog back. You get your truck back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, another genre that I occasionally hear people talk about old school is punk, which for me, and again, punk is another one of those genres that I never really got too much into. I love but, some punk. Yeah, and so you might know a bit more about this than I do, but I guess when I think old school in terms of punk, I'm thinking more of the older DIY stuff that we saw in like the 70s and really early 80s. Yeah, you got your you got your bands like uh, Sex Pistols, the Dead Kennedys, um, things like that. That was that was punk, and then for me anyway. In the early 90s, this band called Green Day came out. And Green Day, you know, has self-declared themselves a punk band. I call them punk pop because they do have elements of punk to their music, at least their early music. Their stuff they're making now is definitely not punk anymore. Uh, But their early stuff did have elements of punk to it, but it was pop. It It was punk that was watered down for the taste of the mainstream. And there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like Green Day, you know, Uh, but they are not pure punk. They are not old school punk. They are new punk or pop punk or whatever you want to call it. And I can certainly understand what you're saying where some of the older punk, like, you know, the Sex Pistols and actually I think didn't Motorhead consider themselves more of a punk band? I don't know, but I would I would not have put them in that genre. Yeah, because I, I thought I heard something that Lemmy uh, never really considered themselves truly metal, even though most people group them into that genre. But you know, early Motorhead, I would say, would be kind of like early thrash metal. And then as the guys aged, the music aged with them, and it became more of like just plain old heavy metal. Um but I definitely hear like um, elements of Motorhead with groups like Metallica, you know, the thrash metal bands. You kind of there's that kind of linear feel through all of it. Yeah, so I would, I guess, for me, just with my layman's knowledge of punk, I would probably. I mean, I understand what you're saying though. How bands like Green Day, um more as you said watered down more radio friendly you know not any not everyone can get into a group like the sex pistols oh absolutely but but green day is a lot more comfortable for some people than like the sex pistols would have been now my favorite genre of music heavy metal rock and roll i can definitely see people using old school there where you might consider like old school rock to be, you know, a lot of your typical classic rock bands. Um, a lot of times the lineup consists of a lead guitar, a bassist, a drummer, and a singer who may or may not play an instrument. So usually three to four guys, uh, generally using very standard time signatures, nothing too fancy, and usually not as complex in the composition as you know some of the later stuff like uh dream theater uh you know there's some of their stuff i guess is pretty complex um what was it uh dragon force they're the ones who did fire and flame right yeah i believe so not saying it's bad being more simplistic but it's just it doesn't have the same complexity that some other styles of music do. So I'm gonna I'm going to invoke a band here because in the time that they were together and the albums that they released, they went from what I would consider old school rock. Now I'm not talking heavy metal anymore. I'm kind of sidestepping to rock and roll. But they started with old school rock and roll and then they were pioneers into new rock and roll. Can you guess what band I'm talking about? Hmm. I'm sure there's probably several bands that could fit that description. Oh, probably. But, but I think would about say who you're talking to. Van Halen? 
No. The Beatles. Okay, yes, the Beatles. So Okay, the Beatles. I can honestly yeah, I can see that because I mean you listen to some of their earlier stuff, um, you know, Love I Me Do hold and Your Hand, Love Me Do, all that kind of stuff, which was classic like bubblegum pop of the sixties. Yeah, very simplistic. Yep. Uh, generally shorter songs. I mean, I think a lot of their songs back then were what, like two, three minutes? Two to three minutes was pretty standard. If you went over three and a half minutes on an early Beatles song, it was like super long. But then they got into the middle bit of their of their existence with things like Revolver and albums like that, which in all honesty, as a Beatles fan, I can say I'm not a fan of those middle albums because they were trying to find where they were headed, you know? But then with the emergence of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, they were a completely different band. They were not the, you know, the bull cut little guys in their in their tweed uh, um, suits, suits. On, on stage, you know? They became, you know, what I would consider more of a mainstream rock and roll band. Now, is it rock and roll like we talk about in the 80s or anything like that? No, it's not. It's not even 70s rock and roll because that was heavier and took a darker turn. But it was that stepping stone. And I'll argue this point till the day I die. I've argued it with you before. I've argued it with uh, Lou before. The Beatles were revolutionary. Like them or not like them, like their music or not like their music, they were a revolutionary band and without the Beatles, we don't have rock and roll like we think of it today. Yeah, I can I can see that. I mean, like him or hate him, you can't deny the influence they've had in music and the fact that they have gone through a lot of changes through the course of their career. Which was really short, actually. They were yeah. a band for nine years. Yeah, I remember we talked about that, how they produced like what, like 12, 13 albums. But I mean, there's groups that they're around for... 20 you know 20 years or so and they they don't even produce that many but they yeah I mean, six albums in 20 years or something like that you know yeah and here it's like less than a decade and they have um i think it was you know, 13 studio albums yeah and again people still listen to them and still uh very much enjoy that music today so yeah and i guess for me it's like i know rock and heavy metal they can be kind of sometimes they can kind of cross a line but sometimes it can be kind of hard to really define where that boundary is. And mm -hmm. I guess for me, I usually put it more at the amount of distortion where, you know, heavy metal tends to use a bit more distortion in the guitars. Uh, can be a bit faster paced. Usually it's the different attitude. It's a different look. It's a different lyrical style, um, different, you know, different subject matter that they touch upon in their albums. Well, you know, it, it's funny, too, because if you look at labels, there are so many labels for music. And it, it comes down to a few things. It comes down to guitar usage. It comes down to foot pedals on the drum, you know, because whether you're using a single bass, you know, or a double, double bass. bass, yeah. You know, that, that characterizes you. It, it's kind of ridiculous. And then in the early 90s, they threw out that ever-important label of alternative, which means nothing. But, you know, like Bon Jovi, uh, we just recently did an episode of Musically Challenged on Bon Jovi. And they were labeled as hard rock in the beginning of their career. But as it went on, they became rock, and then they became pop, basically. Um, you know, they, they, did a, they did a country album. Um, and I kind of like that. I like bands that change. Now you can go, but you like Motorhead too. And you like ACDC and their music has sounded the same from day one to the end of the, the end of the run. But there's something about the, the old school personality of, you know, Motorhead and ACDC you know, there is something to be said about music that just talks about having fun, getting drunk, and getting laid. There, there, you know, there's there's something fun about that. It's easy music to listen to. There's not this deep, heavy meaning to it all. Um, 
But then there is the idea that, you know, if you're going to write music, should it convey something? And that's kind of the new school feel of music, you know. They want to tell, uh, not necessarily a story, but they want you to understand some point that they're getting at. And that's the big thing. That That's kind of my cutoff point between old school and new school. You know, old school was fun, you know, get drunk, get laid, have a party. And then new school is kind of like, okay, all that stuff that came before us is fine. But now let me tell you why I want to get drunk. Or let me tell you about this thing that bothers me. You know, you get bands like U2 who talk about social issues and have their entire career. Um, you know, you get bands like that that are there. They're trying to make a, whether it's a political or, um, you know, uh, just like a uh, some sort of statement that, you know, they think is important that people need to hear. So that's kind of overall, regardless of the genre, that's kind of where I make that cutoff between old school and new school. I mean, I think there's always been musicians that have tried to make deep, meaningful lyrics, but there's always also going to be those bands where, yeah, they just want to party and have fun and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Different right, strokes. Yeah for different folks you know now as we move on and we get to video games and again this is something that i know a bit more about than chad because chad has never really been much into video games so no, just not wasn't my thing and then once the graphics got over like 16 bit or 32 bit i get motion sickness i can't play them yeah i understand i i can't play uh, 3D games for longer than an hour before I start to get a bit sick. And some of them, if there's like a lot of looking around, um, yeah, I can't. Like if my son tried to introduce me to Skyrim, and okay. I think I lasted like about 10 or 15 minutes before I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm just too much motion sickness. <laughs> but yeah, well, one of the things that's interesting, I, in my opinion, when we discuss video games and old school i think it can refer to either the games themselves or a specific conscious style choice of video game sonic now, the hedgehog <laughs> now to refer to urban dictionary uh the way they define old school in context of video games in reference to computer games refers to a game that had substantial playability without flashy graphics or eye candy. Old school gamers appreciate difficult maneuvers, careful planning, and scorched earth policies. So uh, what I say, what I mean, I, can, I think it can refer to the games themselves or a specific style. I, you know, it can ref certainly refer to games like Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, Super Mario Brothers, the original Legend of Zelda. So like I said, it can refer to the games themselves or one of the things that's gained some popularity over about the last 10 years or so are retro style games. So these are games that, they're, they're newer games, they were made recently, but the graphics and play style are more akin to the 2D games of the 80s and early 90s. Um, like one game I can name off the top of my head, Shovel Knight. Uh, also, another one that I really liked was The Messenger. And Undertale, I think, kind of goes in that same uh, thing as well. And Chad, you look like you have absolutely no idea what those games are, do you? No, no. If it's not some little game on my phone or Heroes of Might and Magic, which I play on my computer, and that's kind of an old school game too. The graphics are not... Um, on par with games of today. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I've heard of these video games. I've heard of Skyrim. I've heard of some of the games, but all I know about Skyrim is it's got a really cool cover of a big black dragon. I've seen it, but. Well, one thing with, uh, old school in relation to video games and computer games like, one thing I can see with, like, newer games, there was more of an emphasis on tutorial levels and 
save points every five feet, where you didn't have that in a lot of older games. Uh, like Super Mario Brothers, there was usually one checkpoint per level. So Same you know, with Sonic the Hedgehog. You had yep. to make it to the end of the level or you didn't save. <laughs> and a lot of times in these older school games, it was one hit and you were dead. Or in the case of games like Super Mario Brothers, you got your power up, but if you get hit, then you don't die, but you're reduced to normal Mario. Um, and in Sonic, which again you've mentioned, uh, the way it works in there is, you know, you get rings, and as long as you have at least one ring, you can't be killed unless you fall right. down like a pit. Because, um, like, you get hit and all the rings fly around and you get a certain number of seconds to try to gather them up again. Well, another type of game, board games. I can definitely see the terms new school and old school applying to board games. Because for me, mm -hmm. your old school games, well, you pick your token, you move around, you roll the dice, you move around the board. Usually there's a few things you have to do to keep it interesting. but generally games that maybe only take a couple minutes to set up and usually you can finish in you know 10 15 minutes but then you know eventually they started developing games that took longer to set up and longer to play like uh, i have one friend he's a huge fan of axis and allies i don't know if you ever heard of that game or not I've played that several times, yes. You know, where depending on how things go, that game can last for a couple of hours. Um, also, another game I played with a friend of mine, there's a game based on the series Firefly, where um, we did just like a basic mission, and I think it took us like two, like an hour and a half, two hours to play it. And it took, uh -huh. well, it didn't quite take that long to set up, but... You know, it still took about five, ten minutes to get set up and get ready to play the game. Part of it is this was the first time we also played the game, so we weren't as familiar with it. But again, it's one of those games that a very new school in its design in that there's a lot more rules, there's a lot more variety, there's more depth, there's more strategy, and it can take a lot longer. I mean, it's like set aside an afternoon if you really want to play the game <laughs> so i play a game one of my favorite board games is called arkham horror which is based on the world of hp lovecraft call of cthulhu whatever you want to call surprise, it surprise surprise yeah i know right but anyway um it's a cooperative board game i have played this at least once a year for the last five or six years it takes approximately an hour and 15 minutes to set up and then the game can last anywhere from 30 minutes to several hours. In fact, one time I had set the game up. I had a bunch of people over. The first game we lost in a half an hour. I kid you not. It took me longer to set up the game before they came than for us to lose the game. So we said, all right, we'll set it up again. We saw the sunrise and we still hadn't finished. <laughs> so... It You know, those kind of games, those are the ones I like. Unfortunately, my wife is more of an old school player. You know, we've got, we own some of the old school games, you know, Monopoly, uh, Yahtzee, Risk, things like that. You know, did you ever play the game Stratego? I did when I was really young, but I, it's I not really a game I've played a lot of. Anyway, I, I only thought of it all of a sudden, but that, that's a game I really like that I don't own. Um, simply, it's simply uh, for people who don't know what Stratego is, it's catch the flag with different level of militia men guarding it. So, yeah, and then also what's interesting is there's some games that they're almost that mid ground between a board game and a role playing game. Uh, like one I can think of off the top of my head is Hero Quest, where it's one of those games where it's designed to be played multiple times because you actually do have a little character sheet you can use to keep track of your treasures and, you know, any special items you have. So, I mean, you could certainly play it as a one-shot session, but you can also keep playing the same character through multiple games. So I that's one of the things I liked about that particular game. Yeah, there's several games like that. I can't think of the one I'm thinking of right now, but... 
you start off as a first level character and then you play, a, you know, and you work through all these different scenarios. And obviously you can't play them all in a night because they take a couple hours a piece. But yeah, it's um, it's role playing for the lazy, I call it. <laughs> You know, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, I've... oh no, absolutely not. Well, let that actually does transition nicely into the main event for today's show. Something that Chad and I are both very, very familiar with: tabletop role-playing games. Now, to quote Urban Dictionary again, nerds. <laughs> In reference to role-playing games, old school refers to games that tested players' wits could kill off careless characters, and require dedication and inner strength to play. Old school games didn't pander to the ideas that everyone is created equal, that all options are open to all races, that the markets were somehow free, and that a quasi-medieval society could have near 100% literacy. And honestly, that's something I'd like to discuss because I think whoever wrote that did actually make several good points in there. But to kind of prime our way into this conversation, do you think old school is dependent more on the rules or is old school a state of mind? Or is it a combination of both? You know, that's a hard question. Because when I think old school gaming, um, of course, I go back to when I started playing. So I started role playing in 1994 and so for me old school is second edition dungeons and dragons it is white wolf's vampire the masquerade it is you know games like um atlantis and different ones that um i've played over the years but there's a definite feel there's a definite feel to the rules of older games uh when I started playing Call of Cthulhu, I started playing on 4th edition. They're now up to 7th edition. 4th edition was so deadly that when you started, when each week when we would play, we would go in with four characters. So you had the current character you were playing. If you had any left from the session before, you would have like one or two left maybe. You would fill out your roster of four. And as they died, you just take the dead one, set it aside, and whatever was on top was your next character. I mean, it was deadly. Now, I run 6th and 7th edition, and they've kind of become namby-pambies. Because, yes, Call of Cthulhu is still one of the deadliest games out there as far as character deaths. But I have never had people go like make extra characters. I've never done that because they don't die that way anymore. You know, there's, there's things that allow you to live longer. Creatures aren't as strong. I don't know exactly what it is, but there's definitely something that has made Call of Cthulhu much less deadly than it used to be. And to um, risk being overkill here on this, but the game we're working on, you know, uh, uh, in the back rooms, caught in the back rooms. We've been having this argument for a while now. How deadly do we want to make it? Just to give you guys a little bit of inside baseball behind the scenes here. One of the things that we're currently discussing is how we're going to work hit points for the final product. I mean, both of us want to keep it low, but we're just i guess we're still kind of like we're kind of having that debate as to how low do we want to keep the hit points well you know it's funny because you say you want to keep it low they're going to get a little bit of an insight here but 30 some odd hit points to start the game is is in my opinion too high and i mean play testing will have a lot to do with it too you know i think for the final product but I want, I want like 12 or 15 hit points to start the game and you want, you know, possibly 36. So I don't want to go into it too much because we'll have our own arguments later. But, you know, so that's, that's one of the things I'm trying to point out here is though, is when you look at old school D&D, &D, if you were a wizard, 
What was your hit points in your first, on, in level one? Four. Four hit points and two spells. That's kind of deadly for a first level wizard, you know? Well, and if you actually go back far enough, that's only if you actually learned your spells. Because it wasn't a guarantee in the early versions of Dungeons and Dragons that you would even have spells to start, because if you rolled not well enough, you didn't learn your spells. So you had a spell slot with no spell in it. You know, when you mentioned like a first level mage only having a you know few hit points, that reminded me of this picture that goes around Facebook every now and then in the various gaming groups I'm in. It has a picture of a squirrel, and it's like, remember, as a first level character, your chances of getting killed by a squirrel are never quite zero. You know, and and D&D kept those hit points that way until 4th edition. But then they, they tricked us in 4th edition. I, Actually, 3rd I edition, edition is when they started. Because, uh, again, the way they did it in the old days, the old school way, is you got to... You rolled hit points for a, up to a certain level. And then depending on your class, anywhere from 8th level to 11th level uh, or 10th level... Actually, depends on the edition. I think first edition rangers kept rolling up until level 11. But then after a certain point, you no longer rolled and you no longer got your con bonus. You just got to set, you know, anywhere from right. one to three hit points per level. But third edition changed that where it's like now you, you rolled keep every rolling. level. Yeah. Right. But what I was getting at is is raw numbers. So in fourth edition, they changed that. So. All of a sudden, you know, wizards were a die six instead of a die four. And you're starting hit points instead of being in that four to 12 hit point range. It was more like in the eight to, you know, 16 hit points. But in fourth edition, the one thing they did that I thought actually made sense is they upped the deadliness of the characters of the, of the, of the um, creatures. I mean, so. Okay, now you have eight hit points as a first-level wizard, but now a kobold does six points of damage plus its strength bonus, you know? So they they did this switcheroo. And then 5th edition came along, and as much as I like 5th edition, I really do. It kind of has an old-school... There we go here with the words old-school. It's kind of an old-school feel to it. But it's so hard to die in 5th edition now. It's almost impossible um, because you always – it doesn't matter how much damage is done to you. You don't go below zero hit points. Then you get three – or actually up to six saving rolls. you got to get either three um, saves or three not saves before you die or live. And I don't like that part of 5th edition. I like everything else with 5th edition, but I like a game – where the possibility of death is always there and it's actually legit. Nobody fears dying in 5th edition. Between the saves and the special abilities you get, like surges and all this kind of stuff, I mean, it's pretty hard to die in 5th edition. Yeah, because I, I know in basic and I think even first, zero hit points, you're dead. I mean, I think if my memory serves me correctly, it wasn't until second edition, and I could be wrong on this, but I don't think it was until second edition that they introduced the hovering at death's door rule. And I know second edition also had a massive damage rule where if mm -hmm. you took like half your hit points, yeah, or I know they had some massive damage rule where, okay, you took this much damage, you're dead. But I know, well, I think it was if you took half your hit points in damage you had to make some sort of a save, I think a, a, a con save, and if you failed a con save, you died instantly. Yeah, I think I think it was actually over 50 hit points from a single attack. So that's where I think that definition from Urban Dictionary really hits the nail on the head about can kill off careless characters. Because, mm -hmm. as you were saying in 5th edition, it's very difficult to die. And, I mean, even some of the older games had rules that made it harder to die, like Marvel Superheroes. In that one, again, it was harder to die, but then again, that also does simulate the comic book uh, universe where 
people can take huge amounts of damage. They can get hit by the Incredible Hulk. They can get, you know, slammed by cars and stuff. And, well, they're superheroes. They're they're not always going to die. Um, as a matter of fact, if you get, like, knocked down to below zero health, as long as it wasn't from, like, a, a critical hit with, like, a lethal weapon, all someone has to do is just come up to you and stabilize you. Basically just say, hey, is he okay? Are you okay? And they don't even have to do first aid. They just got to check on you and you're stable. So that I think was not quite old school. I I would think old school would be more like basic D&D where, like I said, zero hit points, you're dead. Uh, none right. of this unconscious, none of this hovering on death's door rule stuff. Right, because at third, uh, when you got to third edition, then it was negative 10 before you were dead. You know, and if you were in the negatives... And nobody healed you. You lost one point per round, you know. Second edition had that too. Oh, did it? So, but it was still, it was 10 um, rounds once you were in the negative before you were dead. Well, they any damage would carry over. So if you had like two hit points and you got hit for like five points of damage, you'd be down at negative three. Granted, you'd still have seven rounds for someone right. to stabilize you, but... You know, so it made it a little trickier to die, but definitely it, still a possibility. Was it in second or third edition where if you were at zero hit points and if you did nothing, you would stay conscious, but otherwise you had basically one move before you fell unconscious? I think that probably sounds more like third edition. Okay. And, you know, for me personally, the cutoff for D&D between old school and new school would be between second and third edition. It would actually be at 2.75, if you know what I'm talking about, the black books that were released. Oh, yes, 2.5. Getting people prepared for third edition coming out. Well, actually, what they were doing is they were getting us prepared for third edition coming out and the sale from TSR to Wizards of the Coast. And so. I, I will agree with you on that. I think if we are going to draw a line between old school and new school D&D, that transition from second to third would be it. Like, mm -hmm. one of the things that the Urban Dictionary definition gave that I have to agree with, and I think, okay, this, I know this is potentially controversial with some stuff, but one of the things they mention is they don't pander to the idea that everyone is created equal and that all options are open to all races. Uh, it's just a fact. Some people are going to have better stats than others, but the thing I wanted to talk about is this idea of, all options being open to everyone. Because again, older styles of D&D, generally dwarves couldn't be wizards. I know that uh, the Dragonlance setting, I think, did give some types of dwarves uh, the ability to progress, but they still didn't get, couldn't reach the same levels as a human wizard did. And I know this is one thing that some people don't agree with, how... You know, a human can progress to any level, but for most classes open to elves, a race that usually lives for hundreds of years, they can only get to a certain level. Um, so what is your opinion on that? Do you think, because one of the things we saw in third edition is they got rid of the class level, the class race and level restrictions. So now you could play a dwarven wizard. You could play a halfling paladin. You could play a half-orc ranger. Things that you normally couldn't do in these earlier editions. What's your take on that? Well, you know, in our current political climate, it's it's um, we we have to be careful about how we talk about that because you know, fifth edition is currently working on getting rid of. And if some of the stuff I've read is true, they're they're working on getting rid of races in general. Um, they're working on, you know, making it more integrated uh, for women, for uh, people that have issues with um, differences between people. And that's kind of the climate we're in right now. Um, as an old school gamer, though, I always enjoyed the little intricacies to certain things like, you know, how dwarves and elves didn't get along. 
they didn't know why they didn't get along. You know, that that hatred between the two was so old that nobody really knows why they didn't like each other. Um, but they just didn't. And, you know, in certain game groups, they played that that dislike between the two characters, you know. Um, as far as open classes, I always thought that should be. I, I, I've never understood why a dwarf couldn't be a wizard or a sorcerer because if everybody else can have this magical juju running through their, through their, you know, veins, so that make them magic, why couldn't a dwarf, you know? Well, I think with the case of dwarves and halflings, since they have innate magic resistance, they get the bonus to saving throws based on their con. That was supposed to be the balance where while they couldn't use wizardly magic, they were more resistant to it. Okay, um, then explain why elves could use magic. They were resistant to certain things, including magic of certain types, sleep. Um, there were other ones too, but sleep's always sleep the one that comes Though sleep in and charm. Basic, though in basic D&D, um, elves are immune to paralysis from ghouls. And the explanation that, I forgot where I read it, but the explanation was that when a ghoul touches you, the reason it can paralyze you is it's preying on your fear of death. And since, or specifically, you know, old age. And since elves live for hundreds of years, they don't have that innate fear that like a human would. Um, okay, but then then answer, then answer or tell me why, you know, certain, it, it just didn't make sense. Um, why... A human could be anything, but let's say an elf had a choice of a wizard or a ranger, a thief, things like that. Half elves could be anything, which I always thought was that. Almost anything. Also, I, I don't think they can be paladins. Oh, that could be. But then think about it this way, too. When you go back to basic D&D, elf or dwarf were your class. They weren't a race. They were a class. You know, and that probably is best suited as a discussion for another time, but I've always wondered that too. And I think it's because early on, remember, D&D &D was still evolving from wargaming where, mm -hmm. you know, so there was still this mentality that, you know, an elf or a dwarf in a war game setting is still going to, you know, still essentially be just a, you know, an elf or a dwarf. But you also got to consider the three demi-humans they did also have those other abilities. Like, for example, elves could use any weapon, use any armor, and cast magic user spells. And they had a couple other abilities as well. To compensate, they took freaking forever to advance. Um, uh -huh. Where, like, other everyone else might be, like, third or fourth level, and, you know, the, the dwarf might be, or the, the elf might be second level going on third. So they were... And even we saw this in second edition where first and second edition where usually the wizard was one level behind everyone and the thief was usually one to two levels ahead of everyone else because they advanced a little quicker. All depends on how much gold you stole. Eh, yeah. But because in second edition for every piece of gold you obtained in a unethical way, you gained one XP. Well, and then, but they did also do, try to balance that out with some other things. Like, warriors got bonuses based on the number of hit dice of creatures that were defeated. Um, wizards gained spells, uh, gained experience for using their spells for a purpose. Like, the example they give is that a wizard who casts a lightning bolt at a beholder has used that spell for a purpose. If he's just walking in the woods casting lightning bolts and fireballs left and right, that's not for a purpose. And then, you know, they had other things as well, like clerics. Right. They were a bit more limited where they only got this bonus XP if they used spells that furthered their religious cause. If memory serves correct, so. Yeah, sounds about right. Now, one thing I do disagree with. You mentioned before how there's been some movements or some, well, maybe not movements, but there's been this trend to try to get rid of races. And 
The reason I don't agree with that is because in this case, we're talking about races in con in the context of a fantasy setting. You know, we're not talking about races as we, you know, we use the term in the modern, you know, the real world. Yeah, because in, in D&D terms, a white guy and a black guy really don't, you know, they're not considered different races. They're both considered humans. Right. Where I still like the idea how, just because that's the way it's been in a lot of fantasy, you know, there's elves, there's dwarves. They don't have to hate each other. They might have ideological differences where elves tend to be more frivolous, more carefree, where dwarves tend to be a bit more serious and gruff. But I, I, I think the way one, I don't remember if this was an official Wizards product or just a product someone's making under OGL, but they were trying to create the system of racial heritage, which could imply that, okay, maybe your character had a little bit of elf in his background. He may be a little bit of dwarf. Maybe he had a little bit of gnome. And that's just like, I don't know. Maybe I'm misunderstanding it, but that just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just kind of, I haven't really gotten into that conversation on any level just because I feel like, no matter what you say, somebody's going to flame you. Yeah, that's you true. Know, someone's whichever gonna... side, somebody's going to take offense or, you know, to what you have to say. So for me, the argument hasn't been worth it. Yeah. Because I, I look at it this way. If my gaming group all decides that we want to bring back that interpersonal issue with dwarves and elves... We can. There's no reason we can't. So that's just kind of my thoughts on it. My thoughts are do what works for your game group, old school or new school. If if it works for your game group, nobody else really matters. As long as everybody in your group is comfortable and you all agree on the rules, that's all that really matters. And I 100% agree with you on that because the way I see it with any role-playing game, they're there to be a guideline. You are more than welcome as a game master to, and I've always, in any game system I've ever written, I've always tried to stress that these should just be considered guidelines. You know, as a game master, you do whatever is going to be, needs to be done to make the game more enjoyable for your group because again each group is going to be different i know people who think this whole this whole movement to de-emphasize the role of race in D is a bunch of hooey i haven't had that come up as an issue in any of my gaming groups yet but i don't know i mean i i, I understand though that sometimes it's one of those conversations where you have to decide if it's worth having and how is your group going to react to it. I just personally think that it's not really necessary because we're dealing with, I mean, if we're talking about something like fantasy superhero or science fiction, where it's clearly not a very realistic or real world setting then I don't think we really need to lose sleep and we really shouldn't get worked up over this whole concept of race in the games. That's where I think the old school approach is, is better. Now, where I think I can see it making somewhat of a difference is when we're talking about modern day settings or games that are intended to model historical Earth. Call of Cthulhu, I think, would actually be a good example because, I mean, we have to consider... Yes, H.P. Lovecraft was a racist. Uh -huh. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't enjoy his, you know, the, the, his works and a fantasy setting, you know, a modern fantasy horror setting created off of that work. But we have to we have to be honest here. Some of the terms and ideas people had about things like race, gender religion and sexuality 
back in the day of HP Lovecraft probably wouldn't fly today. <laughs> well, you know, and there's there's been a push for that too. And in fact, I've changed the way I run Call of Cthulhu to, I mean, there's still some, depending on what era I run in, there's still certain things. Like if I'm running a, you know, 1940s game and somebody wants to play a female doctor, I'm not going to stop them. But there are going to be people within the setting that are going to have issues with a female doctor. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, but you can do that. You can have those situations arise without being that sexist guy from the 40s who's going to use all kinds of terminology that's not necessary. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You can still, in, in my opinion, you can still build those interpersonal conflicts without using the slurs that go with it. Okay. So let's wrap this up here. So I've always considered myself more of an old school gamer. Now, do you consider yourself more old school or new school? Um, I, I enjoy old school more, but that being said, I still play fifth edition and I enjoy fifth edition. I play the new Call of Cthulhu, which is completely different from what I came up on, and I enjoy it. But I prefer the feel of old school over new school. Okay. And do you think old school is more a state of mind? Is it dependent on the rules or a little bit of both? I, For me, it's state of mind because you've played with me before. I don't care about rules. I use rule sets as guidelines. But I allow rules to be broken willy-nilly if it tells a better story. And I guess I would see old school as a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Because, I mean, let's face it, as game masters, we, we, we really probably don't want to spend a lot of time, you know, playing around with, okay, what rules am I going to use? What rules am I not going to use? What rules am I going to modify? I mean, you have some game systems like, like I said, basic D&D, first edition D&D, very, very old school. And, you know, again, more simple game mechanics. And this is a big one. Rulings over rules. It is also a mindset as well, because with any system, you can design adventures that do have more of an old school feel to them. Uh -huh. um, you know, a lot of like the old dungeon crawls like, you know, keep on the borderlands or a lot of the wilderness exploration type stuff like Isle of Dread or just the murder fest that is Tomb of Horrors. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite module type games I played was actually with a game we haven't haven't even touched on, which is Pathfinder. Now, they had a six book series called Kingmaker, which was an amazingly written module where you start out as these low-level characters, the six books or five books or whatever it was, took you through to level 20, and in the process, you became the Kingmaker. You became the group of people who, well, one of you would become king at the end, you know, but it was just such a well-written and it, and it wasn't all about fighting. You know, like a lot of times modules are all about get from this fight to this fight to this fight to fight the boss. This was, in the beginning, there was a lot of fighting. In the middle, it kind of slogs down because it becomes a lot of um, <laughs> how, how a kingdom's, you know, uh, monetary stuff works. Um, you spend some time as like advisors to the current king and stuff like that, and then you and then through it all, you start getting your own pieces of property, and then of course you gotta figure out how you're gonna be paying for this, that, and you know these servants and and that food and. But in the end, it's it's worth that middle slog in my opinion, and it was a lot of fun. We played through, I think we only got through five, four or five of the, the five or six um, books, but it was a lot of fun. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. So Chad, I'd like to thank you for joining me and talking about how old school we are. 
And <laughs> or also, just old. Yeah, old. Well, we're definitely got the old part down. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again for tuning in, everyone. And until next time, happy gaming. You have been listening to a presentation of Eclectic Media Podcasts. Visit our website at www.eclecticmediaproject.com and check out our publishing arm at www.poigamestudio.com Find us on Twitter Scott at EMP underscore Scott Al at POI Game Studio and Chad at Chad EMP You can also find Eclectic Media Project and Point of Insanity Game Studio on Facebook as well Listen to all of our podcasts on Anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more entertaining and thought-provoking content.